Well, I'm going to tell you up front what I'm going to be talking about so that I'm obligated to stick to it. Um, the main points of the sermon today are going to fall into four uh, main coverings or ideas. The first one is, know your God. The second one is, Jesus paid it all. The third one is going to be, we don't get left behind, which is actually the title um, or big idea that Pastor gave me to preach. And the last one is, called, is uh, Taps and Reveille. So, oh good. <laughs> so the question of the day, God is, and I heard wonderful things. I heard love, healer, provider, omnipotent, sovereign, graceful, compassionate, kind, life. I heard lots of things that are beautiful and true. I didn't hear anyone say wrath. How many of you said wrath? Well, I have to tell you that that would not have been my first or favorite thought either. A preschool teacher asked her class to draw a picture of anything they wanted to draw. So one little guy got to work immediately, and he was working so intently on his drawing. The teacher asked her to tell her, asked him to tell her what it was he was drawing. The little boy replied, God. The teacher said, but sweetie, no one knows what God looks like. And the little boy confidently said, uh, they will now. <laughs> what does our God look like? I love to picture him as the God who loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And I love to paint him with his most comforting attributes. Loving, healer, Savior, compassionate, merciful, powerful, full of grace. And thankfully, all of that and much more is true. But to stop there would be to behave like that child. Confidently creating God in my own image. And more sadly, representing him in my own image to the world around me. And you know that the Christian church today, in a lot of places, does that. They preach a God of love and grace and mercy and compassion and healing, but not ever a God of wrath and judgment. As mature believers, we must be willing to deal with the fullness of the character and attributes of God as they are revealed to us in Scripture. And that means we must embrace him and worship him and love him for all of his attributes, including his wrath. So for the purposes of this morning, let's, defi let's define divine wrath. I looked up a lot of definitions, and some of them... I didn't even get. But I, here's one I got. <laughs> so we'll go with that. God's wrath is his perfection, his glory, and his very nature. It is his hostility toward all evil in both human and angels. God's wrath expresses the settled and active opposition of his holy nature to everything that is evil. And I'd like to see that little kid draw that. God is holy. 
He, is, he totally and completely distances himself from sin, from evil, from corruption, and all the resultant guilt and filth. He maintains his purity and rejects, fights against, and destroys that which would offend, attack, or undo his holiness and love. So as I was struggling to wrap my mind around this a little bit more concretely, God reminded me of something that happened on our recent trip to visit our grandchildren in Albany. When we got to Albany last Sunday evening, Andy and Suzanne's basement was flooded. And it smelled of sewage. It turns out, my husband of course figured this out, my husband called Roto-Rooter, and it turns out that roots had grown into whatever it was that's supposed to take water out of the house. And because the roots had clogged that all up, what, all the icky stuff was coming back in the house. And so um, it really wasn't good. And there were a lot of clothes, a lot of papers, a lot of, oh, a lot of everything down there. Um, and I became absolutely obsessed with getting it cleaned out before any mold or mildew or bacteria or any unclean thing could pollute the environment that my children and grandchildren live in. And my passion to do this led me to be absolutely relentless about getting it done. Now, unfortunately, I was physically unable to do a lot of it myself, so my passion extended to... Um, <laughs> to really being passionate about encouraging my husband to get it done, which got a little tricky every time he sat down to do his crossword puzzle. <laughs> what are you doing? It stinks! <laughs> He's a patient man. <laughs> now, he had every intention of getting it cleaned up, but I was driven to do it now. I absolutely could not rest until everything washable was washed and disinfected, until everything saturated with sewage water was hauled out and dumped, until that whole basement was scrubbed, disinfected, and made sweet-smelling. I absolutely could not stand it. Now, I justify my mania with Leviticus 13, 47, 59, which concerns itself with God's regulations about getting rid of mildew. Yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> now, I know this is an example that has some limitations, but the passion I had against the filth that might somehow harm my children and my grandchildren gave me just a small inkling of what God's passion against the filth and ugliness of sin might be. Without that passion to protect and take care of my family, I would not be much of a mother or grandmother. And without passion against sin, God would not be God. Now, I don't get uncomfortable or confused when I'm reading the scriptures that reveal God's love and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness. But I have definitely experienced more than a little discomfort when I read the passages about his wrath being poured out. Anybody with me? One. <laughs> That's good. Deuteronomy 28, 
is a word to the Israelites that reveal the curses God will bring on them for disobedience. I think that's up there. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew. See? I'm right about the mildew. (laughs) And they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall be bronze and the earth which is under you iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and bewilderment of heart, and you will grope at the new... You will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in darkness, and you will not prosper in your ways, but you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually with none to save you. Ushers, bar the door before people leave, and I can't get to the good part. (laughs) (laughs) If you are studying the whole of Scripture, you will find that there are actually more references to the wrath and anger and fury of God than there are to his love and tenderness. Consider Noah and the flood, the plague sent to Egypt preceding the Exodus, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Korah, Dathan, and Abraham, not Abraham, and the 250 others that were destroyed by fire and the earth swallowed them up when they rebelled against Moses as their anointed, appointed leader. The psalmists speak of God's wrath. You have put me in the lowest pit, Psalm 88, 6 and 7. The darkest depths, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. The prophets foretell God's wrath. Paul teaches about God's wrath in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. And John certainly reveals the wrath to come in the book of Revelation. The seven bowls of wrath, Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome, malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you! who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they have poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, O yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. 
The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And I'm going to skip down because it's a lot to take. Um, 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the world to gather them together for the war of the great day of the Lord, of the day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megedon. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip, because you get the idea. It's tough stuff. It's tough stuff. And we believe, as if you've been here for the series, and we believe the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative, Rule of faith and conduct. So, we must learn to see and understand God's anger and wrath in relation to his maintaining and defending his attributes of love and holiness and righteousness and justice. Divine wrath must be embraced as a true attribute of God's character Now, even so, when we read the scripture about the wrath that's been poured out and will be poured out, it can be really hard to take. I experienced this when I was reading through the book of Jeremiah. I I asked God, and and as you know, we can. He's not really afraid of our questions. You can go to him with his stuff. And I asked God to teach me to help me reconcile this, to help me understand the violence, the destruction, the punishment, and all the wrath that I was reading about. And I'll read from my journal what he put on my heart. July 7th. There's nothing I won't do to bring you back to me. I will leave no stone unturned, no method untried of getting your attention. I am your hope, your health, your wellspring, your righteousness, your joy, your peace. Everything else you chase after diminishes the plan I have for your life. Your eternal well-being supersedes your earthly comfort in my plan and my purpose for your life. Be warned that I will stop at nothing to cleanse you and remove you from the path of ultimate destruction. There's always a choice. Choose me. And then from September 9th, which embarrassingly shows you how long it took me to actually read through the whole book of Jeremiah. I alone know... What will turn a heart back to me? I alone know the measure of destruction that will save a soul from destruction. Terror causes a man to run to me. There is no fear, not where I am not. There is nothing I won't do to redeem a soul. You see with limited eyes what the depths of my love are. I see the whole plan, the scope and scan in the heart of man. I alone know how low the heart of man can go. No one who ever called out to me in the entire history of man, no one who ever called out to me was forsaken or lost. See what you see and still trust me. How far would you go to save a child? I have no such limits. I will go farther still. 
See every act of violence as an act of violent love. Punishment has a purpose. You see destruction, I see restoration. You see breaking, I see healing. You see the destruction, I see the rebuilding, the rebuilt, the whole and finished work. It is finished in my son. It is finished. I still can't say that I completely understand all of that. There are so many mysteries about God, things that we don't fully understand. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been known. But God has revealed himself to us and continues to reveal himself to us through all creation and through his word. And we must allow ourselves to really know him and not suppress any truth about him. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you don't know God and worship him for who he reveals himself to be, if we don't know God and worship him for who he reveals himself to be, we are exchanging the truth for a lie. We are creating our own God, which is idolatry, And in that sense, we have nothing real. We have no God. If you don't know God, or who he reveals himself to be, you really have no God. An idol is a worthless God. We can't create God in our own image. We have to know and believe he is who he says he is as he has chosen to reveal himself. He is holy. He will judge. He will punish. Think about it. Would a good judge with no distaste for evil, no willingness to execute judgment, actually be a good judge? Would any of us hunger, and thirst for righteousness if we lacked the capacity to abhor and to be brokenhearted over our wickedness. God hates sin, and his anger burns against the sinner. 
And if we say, oh, my God is a God of love, and I don't believe in all of the punishment and judgment and hell and damnation stuff, if we say that, and much of the teaching of the church today says that, we suppress the truth. We embrace an idol and not the God of Scripture, and we actually have nothing. And we have nothing to evangelize with. God promised if we seek him, we will find him. We must seek to know God and not treat his wrath like it's some blot on his divine character. God is not embarrassed by his divine wrath. And neither should we be. And I have to say that I've been in the place where I would like to skip over those scriptures and I would like to not bring it up you know, to someone else um, who you know, you know, is maybe on the verge and think, thinking they want to come to Jesus. And wouldn't it be nice to just tell them, it'll all be wonderful, you, you know, uh, you know, and, and really he's just a God of love and you don't have to worry about, oh, don't worry about all that hell stuff. And, I mean, you know, but <laughs> what kind of message is that? So now we'll move to the second part, which ought to put some smiles on your very solemn faces. (laughs) I hope. The second part is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. The gospel, the good news of Christ, must be understood against the background of God's wrath and his love. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus came to bear the wrath of God on the cross for us. Imagine, if you can, all of the filth and guilt that was poured out on him, all of the ugliness that was poured out on him so that we could escape God's holy wrath. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death was propitiatory. I never say that very well. It, but it means it appeased the wrath of God. It turned God's wrath away from us and moved God to be gracious toward us. And who understood better? Who understood better the full measure of the wrath of God than Jesus? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. Pure, beautiful, holy Jesus. Knowing not only the physical agony he was about to bear, but knowing the wrath of God he would bear and that he would take on and wear the filth and the guilt and the ugliness when he took on our sin. Yet not my will, but yours be done, he said. And on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and there's an answer. Because I love them. Because I love them. I love them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I love them. I love sinners. God loves sinners. God must judge, but he also loves. And every one of us who believes in Jesus escapes the wrath of God because of the cross. It is finished. The work of Christ on the cross secured our righteousness and salvation and our deliverance from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. The resurrection of Christ secured our resurrection. We're going to look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, you say that with me, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we could walk in him. i got to grab a tissue. I suppose that's on the tape too, right? (laughs) Okay. Oh, well. Next thing I want us to think about. We don't get left behind to face the wrath of God. We don't get left behind to face the wrath of God. A man was in the emergency room, and he was pretty battered, and he was pretty bruised, and the attending physician asked him how he'd gotten injured. Well, he said, I was on a roller coaster, and I saw a sign. Well, I couldn't read the sign, so I stood up so I could see what it said. What did it say? The doctor asked. It was a warning. It said, stay seated at all times. God hasn't hidden his warnings about his wrath, past, present, or future. The warnings in the word about the tribulation that will come upon the earth at the end times are made clear by the Old Testament prophets, by Jesus, and by the writers of the New Testament. Daniel speaks of a time of trouble such as has never existed before. Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty four twenty one, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. 
God also hasn't made the signs of Christ's return hard to read. The Bible talks about the second coming of Christ more than 300 times. And one commentary I read said that was like one in every 26 verses. I didn't count. And God hasn't left believers, us, his church, in confusion about where we fit in. Followers of Christ will be raptured and spared the trauma of death and disasters that will break out in the Great Tribulation. We are spared that wrath because Christ has already appeased that wrath. There's nothing, nothing else that needs to be done for us to be spared the wrath of God except for what Jesus did on the cross and our acceptance of that. The second coming of Christ includes, first, the rapture of his saints, which is our blessed hope. That ushers in the seven-year tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist. And it's followed by the visible return of Christ with us, with his saints, to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Are you surprised that we will be spared the outpouring of the wrath of God? You know, not everybody agrees that that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. But God has always been in the business of rescuing the righteous. Enoch was raptured before the flood. Noah's family was rescued from the flood. Lot and his daughters were rescued before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And Jesus, Jesus, jumped into our humanity and into our sin and effected the most incredible rescue beyond any comprehension, and it was enough. When Jesus... I'm sorry. When we talk about escaping the tribulation, it's important to remember the word is used two different ways in Scripture. Sometimes the word tribulation is used to refer to the persecution and trouble we have because we are people trying to live for God in a godless world. And we don't escape that. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us we're going to escape that. But the tribulation judgments of the great tribulation, and if you remember back earlier in the sermon, I read from... John's revelation, that pouring out of wrath are not in the same class. That clearly represents God's wrath, and we do escape that. We believe that the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and their translation together with those who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord is imminent, and the blessed hope of the church. And I have to say that there were moments when I was reading some of this stuff that I kind of hoped the rapture would, rapture would happen before I had to come and say it this morning. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm up. <laughs> but I wasn't. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 helps us unravel the rapture just about best in all of Scripture. So we're going to look at that now. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, I'm there, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, and that could be us, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Are you comforted? Oh, hallelujah, I'm comforted. Old Testament believers had a very incomplete knowledge of what happened to a person at the time of death. Sheol was a word that they used to describe the disembodied state of both believers and unbelievers. They believed everyone would die and there would be one future resurrection at the end of the world. Now Martha reflected that when um, her brother Lazarus was dead and Jesus came to the tomb and eventually resurrected him. And, and when Jesus talked to Martha ahead of that, um, um, Martha said, Well, I know that my brother Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When Paul first went to Thessalonica, he taught the Christians about Christ's coming to reign and the events that would follow. But they had concerns. Their loved ones, some of their loved ones had already died. So Paul answers their questions by describing the order of events at the time of Christ's coming for his people. Verse 13, if we look at that again, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. God puts the signs up. Now sleep there is used to describe the bodies of those who have died, not their spirits or souls. We know that a believer's spirit departs to be with the Lord at the time of death. If you think about it, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And, um, for, and Corinthians 5.8 says, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Okay, we're going to look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now the basis of that hope that we have is the resurrection of Christ. Verse 15, for, we, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, and how does Paul know this? He says, I know this by the word of the Lord. Paul is getting this by direct revelation. 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, not all of the dead will be raised, only the dead in Christ. Revelation 20 teaches us that the rest of the dead are raised at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we always, so shall we always be with the Lord. Now, just for technical purposes, caught up 
in the Greek is translated snatched away powerfully. And the word rapture actually is translated from the Latin Bible that was the main Bible for a long time. Therefore comfort one another with these words. What a reunion. Dead bodies united with their spirit. Resurrected believers reunited with living believers. And all believers meeting the Lord. If you're not comforted yet, listen to this excerpt from David Jeremiah's book, What in the World is Going On? I've, I, I was enjoying, I, I read this book a while ago, and then I, I thought, yeah, there might be some stuff in there that will make me sound equally as brilliant as he is. So, with that in mind, all right. <clears throat> in a split second, the Lord will call all believers to himself to share in his glory. Not one will remain behind. It is hard to imagine just what that will be like, but I read a paragraph recently that created this vivid picture. Millions of people from all parts of the earth feel a tingling sensation pulsating through their bodies. They are all suddenly energized. Those with physical deformities are healed. The blind suddenly see. Wrinkles disappear on the elderly as their youth is restored. As these people marvel at their physical transformation, they are lifted skyward. Those in buildings pass right through the ceiling and roof without pain or damage. Their flesh and bones seem to dematerialize, defying all known laws of physics and biology. As they travel heavenward, some of them see and greet those who have risen from their graves. And after a brief mystical union, they all vanish from sight. I like it. See, aren't you glad you stayed? (laughs) Okay, so the next section of the sermon is Taps and Reveille. Zach's been looking forward to this. (laughs) When Winston Churchill planned his funeral, he asked that a trumpeter be perched in the highest reaches of St. Paul's Cathedral to play taps at the end. All is well, safely rest, God is nigh. However, immediately after the playing of taps, high in another gallery sounded another trumpet, more strongly blowing reveille. The call to rest was immediately followed by a call to arise. And I looked up the words of reveille. I have no idea how they fit the music. But the words that I got were, Reveille, Reveille is sounding. The bugle calls you from your sleep. It is the break of day. You've got to do your duty or you will get no pay. Come, wake yourself. Rouse yourself out of your sleep and throw off the blankets and take a good peek at all the bright signs of day that are here. So get up and do not delay. Now, you know Reveille goes, I can't figure how those words would ever fit that. And I, and I tried for like a good 50 minutes. And I was like, almost called Zach. So. <laughs> we can rest in our assurance of the rapture of the church and of our removal before the wrath of God is poured out during the great tribulation. What peace we can have about that. We can rest in that. What joy we can have in that. But it's got to be accompanied by a call to arise. What plan does God have for us as we wait? 
okay, well, I'm good. Most of my family is good. I'll just, Tim Hortons. Let's, you know, let's meet. Let's talk about the good book. Okay, let's fellowship together. All right, not it. So I want to take the word wait, W-A-I-T, and use each letter to emphasize what we should be doing while we wait. W, watch. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Live sensibly, righteously, godly, and watch in anticipation, in expectation. The closer you are, the closer you stay to Jesus, the more excited you're going to be about watching for his return. And the farther away from it you are, the more complacent and possibly the more fearful you're going to be about it. Watch, looking for the blessed hope. Be purified. Be zealous for good deeds. You know, believers are not going to be judged based on our eternity. Our eternity is settled. If you've accepted Christ, if you believe in Christ, your eternity is settled. And you're not going to be at the great white throne judgment where people are either in the book of life or they're not, and, and, and eternal destiny is decided. But there is a judgment for us, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, after the rapture, where we will be judged for our works. Not that those works did anything to get us there or to secure our eternal future. When Jesus comes for us, we will be judged and rewarded according to the measure and the motive of our works, the jewels and the crown that we will eventually lay at the feet of Jesus. So we wait and we watch and we're zealous for good deeds. Because there is a judgment about how we use our time and talents in the time that God has given us. A, from W-A-I-T, A, act. We need to act like the Acts Church, filled with and led by the Holy Spirit to fulfill every ministry that God has appointed and anointed us to. Boldly proclaiming Christ, boldly proclaiming the Great Commission. 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. A. Act. Act. How many of you would agree that we're living in a time when people really want their ears tickled? And they really don't want to hear the truth? Yeah. How important is it that we watch and act? I. Intercede for the lost. 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, the people in authority around us need those prayers, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God takes no pleasure in judgment and pouring out his wrath. His heart is that all be saved. God so loved the world. The world. Boy, we have to intercede not only for them, but for us. We have to intercede for us that we somehow can carry the heart of God in these times. I don't have that kind of love. I'm real happy my kids are saved. And I'm praying and praying that my grandchildren will know Christ early in their lives. And I, that's, that's great. But that love is there already. That love exists without me working very hard at it or asking God to give me more of it. But the love for the people that I don't know, the supermarket people, the people in the workplace, the people all around me, the, the people that are, you know, like, like Dawkins, said, you know, who, 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 who really has nothing, has horrible things to say about God. For the Muslims, for the Iranians, for the lost. I, I, I don't have that kind of love without intercession, without getting on my face and saying, God, somehow, by your grace and your mercy, give me your passion, your compassion. Help me see things through your eyes so that I have a heart for intercession because you have a heart for intercession. And finally, T, W-A-I-T, testify. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Watch, act, intercede, testify, and be a living testimony. That's one of the most powerful ways of testifying. We believe we can know God and fear him and yet not be afraid. We believe we can trust in the absolute sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. We believe we will not be left behind. And we believe we can be tools the Father uses to rescue others from the coming wrath. As the musicians come, I want to to say that if you don't have these assurances today, and you would like to make them yours by asking Jesus into your heart. We're going to have a time where people that need prayer can come during this last song. But also, if you don't know, you won't be left behind. What is it you're waiting for? Be sure. Be sure of it. You don't have to have all the answers to every question you have scripturally to accept Christ today. You just have to know you're a sinner and decide what you're going to do with Jesus. And he'll take you from there. So I would ask that if there's anyone here that needs that assurance and salvation, you would come. But these altars are also going to be open during this last part of the service because we didn't really have a prayer time at the beginning for anyone who needs prayer or wants prayer or wants time or wants to ask God to give them that heart to intercede for the lost before the rapture of the church, which, brothers and sisters, there's nothing that needs to happen, nothing scripturally that needs to happen before the church is raptured, nothing. Could be any day. So if you'll join me in worship, and feel free to join me at the altar for prayer, or if you're in need of prayer, We'll use this time before we close the service for that. Thank you.